Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant. Good to see you. It was great even more to walk into a building that looks like it looks this morning, wasn't it? Would you help me thank a large team of people who made this happen this past week? All while your preacher went on vacation. I was useless. But uh, we really do want to thank you for the opportunity we've had to get away for a few days. I'm looking forward to launching into our, our series again starting next week. But today I want to take a pause. We have two very important conversations that we want to have together. The first of those has to do with our recent excursion back into North Vietnam. So I want to ask the members of that team that were uh, over there just a few weeks ago if they would join me here on the stage Again, uh, starting next week, just while they're coming up to give you an update of what's coming, we'll be back into the series, Non-Anxious Presence. We still have a couple of weeks left before we end that, taking us right up to Christmas. Next week is actually, when I was putting this series together, was my all-time favorite one, and I can't wait to preach it. So I promise I'll keep it under an hour. But you, you should show. You really should. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, but today, we want to start with, um, let me hand you guys some microphones. I know you. How are you? I hope so. Yes, we do. We, 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 we had dinner last night, didn't we? It, it, just whoever. You guys are going to be passing this back and forth. So this was, these were your representatives and mine to North Vietnam. This is uh, really an effort that's been ongoing for about six years. There was this virus that went around the world that you may have heard about that uh, prohibited us from going over there for a couple of years uh, and therefore prohibited us from going one level deeper. We've now engaged uh, the village, uh, the area of Bun Phun up near the Chinese border for the very first time. And I just wanted you all to hear directly everything from our Parts of our Christmas offering are going to this kind of investment, uh, and, and you've got people that have been over there that can tell you firsthand what's going on. And so just tell us, first of all, because we've got a lot of new people here, and I'm going to start with my, I'm married to this one, by the way, so if I get a little flirty, she's my wife, just in case you didn't know if you're new here. Um, it, it, and, but a lot, some of you are new here, and you don't know how this relationship came about. Sweetheart, would you tell them how this came about? Sure. So we have a, a partnership with a Vietnamese uh, nonprofit. It's called an NGO. It's called GBI, and they do humanitarian work in the country. About five years ago, two things happened. The first is that we partnered with that organization as a church to donate water buffalo to 28 Vietnamese farming families up in the north, and that is transformational for them. Okay, about the same time, the NGO started talking with me about us beginning our own unique work there in the country, something that was going to be our own focus. A couple of years later, we started talking seriously about what that would look like, and they brought up this community, Bunfoon, as a potential um, place for us to serve. The really amazing thing is, while we were there just a few weeks ago, I learned that those water buffalo that we donated five years ago, almost all of them went into this community, and I had no idea. So we've actually been engaging in this community for five years 
before we had ever heard their names, before we had ever met them, or certainly set foot there. And I think that's really amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let me talk to me, the, the rest of you, about how some of the projects, and if it's all right with you, Jeff, I want to start with you, because you, you had a unique situation to be connected personally with resources that we helped send over there uh, around a, a water project. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. The, uh, the project that I went over to help with um, was relatively straightforward. Uh, the church supported uh, the middle school with a, an above-ground cistern. It's made out of bricks and it has a concrete veneer. And the reason that they needed it is because the, the existing one is kind of falling apart. So over there in that area, they have a dry season. And during a dry season, water can be kind of, it's a scarce resource. So this, when I went over there, basically I helped them. I moved a lot of bricks. They had about probably five tons worth of bricks that they were using. Uh, the cool thing about it was I was really the help, the manual labor to go over there. The project itself, I, I helped out for about two days. It's about a 20-day project, and they had local resources that they hired to actually build it, be the skilled labor to construct it. So I learned a lot from them, and one of the cool things was when I was moving a lot of bricks and kind of helping stack stuff, get resources organized, uh, during the afternoon, I had all these middle schoolers come over, and they were all helping me. They were laughing. They were having, hooting and hollering and having a lot of fun. So, you know, I didn't go over... Uh, as far as the medical side, but I went over and just got to enjoy seeing the kids, put my back to work. My back was sore when I was done, but it was a great time, great day, great opportunity. So, Did you say there were five tons of bricks? About five tons of bricks. That Did we you move them all? Yeah, we moved them probably about 20 feet down, stacked them all up for the actual guys that were building the thing okay. to allow them to do it a lot quicker. So you didn't have to go to the gym for a week when I you did. got home? I did. Jeff right. worked so. harder than anybody else on the trip. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so I highly recommend it. You know, I would just say if you have, if you're willing, have a willing spirit to go, come. There's a, there's an opportunity to serve to do pretty much anything. I mean, and and it was just a phenomenal experience. What I love about all these projects, but yours in particular, is whether you get on a plane and go over or not. There's a a partnership, and when we talk about the whole church being engaged not just a few select individuals, not just the pastors, but the whole body of Christ putting their skills to work. You put your skills to work, and when you arrived, monies that were given by members of this congregation that may never set eyes on that area, those resources were already there, and it was the way we worked together to make that happen. And one, ever, one, one other really neat coincidence that happened while we were there, um, I think it was uh, Samaritan's Purse actually showed up the day, we were start, the day I was there and the team was there working. Uh, Samaritan's Purse was there doing a site visit, and because Covenant initiated this project with the above-ground cistern, that was a key component that they actually had the ability through Samaritan's Purse to provide a filtration system that's going to be put onto this above-ground system once it's completed. So that's going to provide not only just clean water, but clean drinking water for this community, which is huge. Yeah. So yeah. just how things work out. Yeah, this is the essence of what we call transformation. It's great. Jeff, you worked with other, you, Jeff's a physician here in town. You work with other uh, Vietnamese physicians over there hosting clinics. Tell us a little bit about what you did. I was given the opportunity to do basic first aid and uh, diagnosis training to, first of all, the teachers at this middle school. This middle school has about 180 students, and I understand 120 of them, about two-thirds of them, actually live on campus. They're boarding. So they're there full-time. There isn't a nurse there on this campus, so the teachers are given the responsibility of helping students who get injured or ill, and 
they're not really trained in that. So I was given the opportunity to go and do basic first aid and diagnosis training for uh, these teachers. There were probably seven or eight of them that came and, and heard what we had to say. And we also had the opportunity to give them a lot of materials that we collected, um, basic medications, um, dressings, uh, and so forth. And so, uh, so for about probably an hour, I was talking to these teachers with uh, help from my faithful assistant, my wife, Jenny, who very good-naturedly was the patient for all of my medical training. <laughs> I did an abdominal exam on her. I did the Heimlich maneuver on her. <laughs> it's probably a good thing we were married, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and was able to just demonstrate, we put dressings on you, rolled you with uh, gauze and so forth. Uh, and I think it was very beneficial for the teachers to be able to see how they should be treating students and who were injured or ill. The other place that we went was to the local clinic just a little bit down the hill from where the school is, and there was a, a gentleman there in a white coat who had, I think, basic medical training, perhaps at the level of an RN, but he was also the midwife for the community and delivered about 80 children per year, he said, uh, there. It was a nice facility that they had there, uh, paid for by the Vietnamese government. Um, and, um, and so we got a chance to see what their needs were. One thing, of course, was uh, the, the government gave them a lot of their dressings, their disposable medical supplies, but didn't give them a lot in terms of equipment. And the, the surgical instruments that he showed me were pretty rusty. And uh, so there's, a, there's an opportunity for our church to be involved in an ongoing work of helping this clinic to do excellent care. Thank you, Jill. And Jack and Susanna, you guys are in the medical field as well, but you did some work in terms of hygiene. Tell us about that. Yes, we did. Um, the training was great. So we just did some basic health and hygiene training with the students. Obviously, I taught the female students and Jack took the male students. Um, and the students were very just so respectful and so hospitable and just receptive. They were very eager to learn uh, the skills that we, were, that we were teaching them. And just keep in mind, some aspects of hygiene can be very challenging for these young ladies just due to the remoteness of their community. And we were able to leave behind a small backpack filled with hygiene supplies for each student. Um, and that was amazing. They were very excited to receive those supplies. And so I just wanted to say to all of those who helped us uh, create those items and put them together, thank you so much. Um, your work made a direct impact on those mm -hmm. girls' lives. So thank you. Awesome. And I had the opportunity to work with the young men. Uh, in Vietnam, there's... Um, they don't teach certain things together, and so I taught the young men the same things pretty much that Suzanne taught them. One of the most, one of the neatest things that, that I found is that we always worked with a translator. And um, I would speak, the translator would translate. And multiple times, multiple times, there would be this um, expression that I kept hearing. And it was like, what? Oh, 
And I asked my translator, what does that mean later on? And he said, you were teaching them things that they never knew. So it was a wonderful opportunity. It was a wonderful opportunity and very rewarding to know that, that we were able to take something of value over there to, to leave them that will provide lift to them in the future. I thought it was really awesome the way you guys jumped in, because as you've already noted, some of the material was of a sensitive nature, and you're wondering, you know, are the English-speaking Americans the first people who really need to be introducing this? But I really appreciate the courage that both of you had in opening up their world. Donna, you had a camp day that you were in charge of. The only thing I remember seeing on the video was this giant parachute, and my inner third grader came out immediately. <laughs> And I wanted to be over there doing that. But you, you look like you were having a lot of fun. Tell us about your impressions of the school. <laughs> or maybe you weren't. I don't know. Tell us, tell us about your impressions. Who doesn't love a giant parachute? Yes. Right? When we were talking about camp. And I was not in charge of the camp day, actually. Jeff, I think, was. And he facilitated all of these um, relay races and all kinds of things. It's amazing how you can do all of those things with children who can't speak English and with no translator. I can tell you with the parachute, for a while, I would say everybody with blue run under, and I would touch the blue, and I would point at the blue, and we'd go up with the parachute, and everybody would let go and run. <laughs> and it was a free-for-all. <laughs> but they had the best time. But there were two things really specifically about that day that were um, kind of stood out. One of them was one of, at one point one of the teachers came over to play the parachute with us, and she's, she was an English teacher. She's just absolutely precious. But she said, our students love that you guys are playing with them because these guys were doing the relays. Um, Jack was slaving over the grill, which is the next thing <laughs> about that day. So the students, as Jeff noted, they are um, most of them bored. So they had to stay overnight Friday to be there Saturday for this day. And they, they were very excited when we got there. But the second part of that day is we honored or we, we hosted a meal for them. These students get protein three times a week. They get tofu twice and pork once. But in this meal that we provided for them, they got two hot dogs each. They got three fish things each. They got chicken. They got, I mean, their whole plate was protein, hot sauce, and then Every student got a loaf of bread that was about 12 inches long that actually had, we had ordered from a former student of the school. And they were just ecstatic about that meal. And Coca-Cola. Coca we poured a lot of Coca-Cola that day. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, thanks for sharing about this. I, I want to talk a little bit about the future before you guys step off stage because a lot of good things happened, obviously. Um, but you, you I, to any sort of person who thinks about this more than a few seconds, the things that we did over there, while good, if it stays at that level, is not a sustainable model for what we want to do in terms of bringing lift to a community. What Christian people talk about is bringing glimpses of the kingdom of God where there is no lack, right? Where, where there is no, we, we define poverty here at Covenant as a lack of ability to obey God's command to take your area of dominion. So how, how do we help another group of people to do that and bring lift to that community. And to do that, you got to think way far out beyond just the things that happen because medical supplies run out, food runs out, 
eventually you, you want the community to be able to provide those things for itself. You also know that's not going to happen overnight, which is why we say no a lot more than we say yes in terms of projects. Here at Covenant, we don't run all over the world. We pick one, maybe two places around the world, we sink the shaft deep. Uh, and we do that very intentionally so that we can step by step do the hard work that's necessary alongside our partners in those other cultures. So, sweetheart, would you talk to us a little bit about what you, your team sees as the next steps? What's next? So, there are so many good things we could do. There are a ton of good things we could do. We could be doing good things for 25 years, I think. But what we've got to focus on are the best things that bring to bear the resources and the skill sets that we have here in that place. And so over the next few months, we're going to be talking about that. There's conversations with the stakeholders, the people there in the community to figure out how we can serve, how we can partner with them for transformation and do the best things that will make the longest, deepest impact in that community. Um, I do think that that's going to involve hygiene and, and medical. I think that there's going plenty of opportunity there and we will be doing more there, but it, it'll go beyond that as well. Yeah. So one last question before we pray for you guys, and that is we, we talk here about the, the phrase global, the idea that we, we want to have a global awareness, but we never want to leave our local roots. We, we understand that the world is kind of tied together now inextricably uh, from all these other areas. And so we're at work not only in, in Vietnam, we're at work in the city of Baltimore. We're at work here locally in places like Fox Glen and Apple Tree. Uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the principles, even that the Vietnamese through our service there can teach us that would be transferable back to a place like Baltimore or like the, some of these local areas where we're at work. Well, there are so many things. I think everything we do globally makes us better locally and everything we do locally makes us better globally. It, it, we work hand in hand. One of the things I think that um, we are improving upon is our cultural intelligence our ability to work across cultures to serve people who may be very, very different from us. Sometimes we think that cultural differences are on national boundaries. It's when you go to another country, but sometimes cultural differences are across the street. And it helps us to be mindful and thoughtful about how people who are different from us living a different life may have different priorities. They may want to do things, see things differently. They may, they may have different goals and to work alongside them to understand what those are rather than trying to kind of force our ideas on them. And that leads into paternalism, which is something that is very easy to get into when you are going into a situation when the, where there is need that you want to meet. When we walk into a place saying, hey, I've got all the answers, I'm going to solve all your problems. Just listen to me and everything will be okay. It's really easy to do that, and that's not what we want to do globally or locally. We want to work alongside people. We want to serve them but work together to create lift, not just impose our ideas upon them. And if we can do all of that on the other side of the planet among a people who speak a monosyllabic language that I can't even pronounce... Last time I was over there, my translator just looked at me and said, just stop, just, right? If we can do it in a place like that, it makes it a little easier to do it in a place that's a little bit more similar. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you all for going. 
Thank you for modeling, for being the tip of the spear for us. Uh, we love you. I want to pray for you. And by the way, when I speak about those other areas, you want to be here the last Sunday in January. That's our first unity service of 2023. And we're going to have our Baltimore volunteers to come and to share a little bit about the work that they're doing. You never know. I may be able to get Stephanie Greer back or someone like that from the city that's working with us. But you're going to hear more in depth about the work that we're doing. And so, uh, again, thank you for your radical generosity that allows us to do this. Let's bow together, and if you want to stretch your hands forward in agreement with me as we pray for these men and women and for the future of this work. Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity for people to go, and I thank you for those who, like Isaiah, said, here am I, send me, when they didn't know exactly where they were going, uh, although geographically they knew, but, but Lord, just what they were going to get into, the flexibility that is often called for on trips like this, I thank you for their kindness toward each other. I thank you for their deference and their compassion. And Lord, I thank you for what they have learned. I thank you for what the people of Vietnam are teaching this church. Because Lord, we know all we really need is the scriptures to remind us that you love the world in such a way that you gave your only son. But Lord, I learned the older I get how much we need the world to teach us how to love it. Um, because we can't love people we don't know and that we're not familiar with. And so, Lord, I, I just thank you for the, the mutual blessing and benefit of an effort like this, and I pray that it would increase, and I pray that you would get great glory from all that comes in the years to come. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus and God's people together said, amen. amen. Would you thank these men and women? Thank you all. Thank you, brother. So now we're going to have another kind of conversation. This one is tough. This one's about the sanctity of life. This one has to do with the history that we live in right now. It has to do not only with what we believe as a church and what the Christian church really has always believed about the sanctity of human life for 2,000 years, but, but, but what we believe and how that needs to be applied in the current environment in which we find ourselves. Back in the summer, there was a a law, a, a judicial decision that had been in force since I was, since one day before my first birthday. And I'm now a 50 year old man. It was a judicial decision that prohibited any of our states or local governments from placing very many restrictions at all on the process of terminating unborn life. We celebrated as a congregation back in the summer when that decision through another subsequent Supreme Court decision called the Hobbs decision, overturned Roe v. Wade, thereby allowing, it, didn't, it doesn't end abortion. What it does, though, is it allows the states to restrict or open up access as those respective state governments see fit. Obviously, this was a great opportunity for the church in many ways, but it's also a time for us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And it's a time for us to be very, very clear about our message. You know, I have a friend who says this, if you mix faith and partisanship, you get partisanship. And that's not what we're about here. But we are about speaking the truth in love, and here's what I know about the pro-life movement historically. And it is why you can say with abundant clarity that Covenant is a pro-life church. We're pro-life because we believe that ideally we should all be reaching toward a moment when nobody's thinking that there needs to be a choice between the mother and the child. Now, how do we get there? 
What do we do? How, how do we show appropriate compassion while speaking that truth? We've got a couple of folks with us this morning that are going to help us with that conversation. One of them you know well, and I want to invite both of them just to come on and make their way up here now. One is one of our deacons, Michelle Walls. If you've been around the Covenant family more than a year or so, you've heard her story, uh, and you know of her work, and I, I want her to speak into this with the authority that I know she has. A second voice is one that I have known for a long, long time, and she has come all the way from the foreign nation of Dothan, Alabama, to be with us today. See, we're West Virginians, and we thank God every day for Alabama, Mississippi. We just do. Absolutely. So Dana is a journalist with the Alabama Media Group, a very strong pro-life advocate. She works in Crisis Pregnancy Center. She's going to talk about her work as well. But the thing I've appreciated about her, our larger Baptist family that we're a part of, she's been one of the more prophetic voices helping us to speak truth, but to do it with compassion. Would you help me welcome both of these ladies to Covenant? All right. Well, thanks for coming. Thank you for having us. Are you on? Did they turn that thing off? They turned that thing off. Thank you guys so much for having me here today. It's a joy and a privilege just to get to engage with another church family, to to worship with another church family. So I feel really fortunate to be with you guys. Yeah, you're normally tell us a little. Personally, you're married to... I'm married to um, a, guy named Scooter. a guy named Scooter, All right. and what's funny about that is he has a bird dog that's a little rambunctious and gets out of the house occasionally, and on, on the dog's collar it says Scooter McCain and has our address and phone number, and people will call and say, I found Scooter. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know a, you're talking to Scooter. <laughs> and he's an attorney. He is an attorney. So if John Grisham ever writes another novel... <laughs> His lead character needs to be an attorney named Scooter, Scooter McCain. McCain. That's I just, right. That That's would right. just be excellent. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming all the way up. And uh, Michelle, every, everybody I think kind of knows you, but talk, let, let's start with you and then go to Dana. Talk a little bit about your background in this, in this subject matter sure. and in this work. Sure. Well, to explain my background, really, I need to start with my personal story. Um, I, when I was in college, did make the choice to have an abortion and... Um, brought a lot of devastation into my life not very long afterwards. And um, God just really led me on a path of healing and dealing with that and created a passion in me to help other women in, who have gone through that. And um, which, you know, thankfully our church is so open and supportive of this ministry. And in January, we're going to be starting another group for any woman who has been through abortion and who... Um, needs to find some healing and, and truth and forgiveness. And um, I think a little later, we'll be sharing my email and your, would love for you to reach out to me and um, yeah. you know, have that conversation. And that's a private email. That's yes, one exception yeah. we've made to that rule. I don't get it. Nobody in our office, only Michelle's yeah. going to get that. Um, and thank you for what you've, you've helped. Uh, I, I don't know how many women you've helped because I don't know who they are. I don't know. And it's one of those things that we're, we're going to have to get the glory together before we realize the full impact of what you've done. But I, I really appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. thanks for what you've done. Dana, talk about your work. So um, I was reflecting on this on the way up here yesterday. I think the first time my heart was really moved for the pro-life cause was in the eighth grade. My best friend from childhood, um, her father was a pastor, and he called my parents one day and said, you know, I'm taking Selena to a pro-life march in Montgomery tomorrow, and if Dana would like to go with us, we'd love for her to ride along. And um, 
man, I didn't even really know what I was going to that day. I knew I was getting out of school. That's what I knew. And so I was in the car immediately. I would have gone. Yeah. yeah. And But what the Lord did in my heart that day, just by showing me uh, sort of the, the depth of, you know, the tragedy of abortion um, stuck with me for many years. And then, um, you know, when, when I landed in my now hometown of Dothan, Alabama, Scooter and I were immediately engaged with some couples in our church and in Bible study who were ardent supporters of our local crisis pregnancy center. It's called Wiregrass Hope Group. And so they started inviting us to their annual fundraising banquet where we learned a little more, and we became financial supporters of that effort many years ago. And we're always really, um, you know, glad to be a part of that because we could sense what good work was being done there and how vital and how needed it was. Um, and then a few years later, there, the, the director of the center called me one day out of the blue and said, Dana, I've just been praying through, you know, people that the Lord might move into Wiregrass Hope Group in a more engaged, hands-on way. And you came to my mind, and I, I wondered if you would come up and take a tour and learn more about our mentoring and counseling process and see if you would be, you know, led to volunteer in that way. And long story short... I did, and I was, and that started several years of me spending, you know, hours upon hours in small rooms across from women with stories like yours and, and so many others of, you know, coming to a point of, of crisis and indecision and trying to decide, you know, if they had the courage to to keep their baby, and um, it was tremendous for me, Joel, because I'll say this. While I've always been ardently pro-life and, and thought of myself as a compassionate person, I did not realize until I engaged with the women who are typically abortion vulnerable on a daily, intimate basis, the depth of the pain and the depth of the poverty, both financial and emotional and spiritual, and, and the needs that are there that lead us to this crisis. I, when, when the Lord allowed me to enter into that work, it was, a, it was an education for me. And it softened my heart for these women in ways that I was too ignorant to be before. Um, and so I, I think it's, I wish everybody who um, thinks of themselves as pro-life could have that opportunity to really engage hands-on with these women because not only does it grow your heart for them and, and for their children, but it educates us so much about how truly we can be of help to them yeah. and eliminate this perceived need for abortion in our country. Yeah, can you unpack a little bit more for me that idea of abortion vulnerable? Because, and I'm asking the question because those of us who are ardently pro-life, there's a caricature that we're tempted to buy into and it's what we typically see in the media. It's the woman who wears a T-shirt who brags about the three abortions she had. I think anyone who's been where you've been knows that person's in a very, very small minority of people. The, the vast majority of women who, who struggle with this, what does that mean to be abortion vulnerable? There are several different sort of characteristics that are common to abortion vulnerable women, and one of them, and I think probably the most consistent, is, is poverty. If you look at the statistics, and, and I was looking at this again just a few days ago for something I was writing, and depending on which set of data you look at, the number varies a little bit, but the average woman who actually 
pursues abortion, you know, they're 60 to 75% of them live below the poverty line. So when you live below the poverty line and in poverty culture, very frequently, uh, other than just be having a lack of financial resources, that also means you have a lack of access to health care. Mm. Many times it means you are from a non-traditional family scenario where there's a lack of support in the home. There's a lack of two stable, loving parents. I counseled so many young women, Joel, who didn't live with either parent. They maybe, you know, their mother had never been married to their father. And so mother tried to parent them for a little while. And then she sort of fell by the wayside because of drug addiction or other issues. And the child then goes into DHR or goes to live with a grandparent. And that grandparent is, you know, overburdened and sort of, you know, not capable really of providing what that child needs at that stage of life. And so it's so many women who grew up with just a total lack of stability in every possible way, um, a total lack of community in terms of a church or, you know, a faith background or any sort of big picture training or learning about God and who they are in him and the value that they have in them. And so it's no wonder then when they get to this point that they lack an understanding of the value of their child to God because they don't even perceive that value in themselves. So that's what we see oftentimes in abortion vulnerable women. Wow. Wow. And now that dynamic hasn't changed. It stays the same. But we have a completely different legal environment now. A lot of us do anyway. Um, and so let, let's talk about that. Because I don't, I don't know that any of the three of us would have expected a decision like this in our lifetimes. I, 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 I mean, I waited so long that I thought, I don't know. I, your pastor was a cynic. I'm sorry. But I was just, you know, politicians, you, you just go, ah, it'll never happen. 50 years is a long time. It is a really long time. 50 years is a really long time. And so now it's kind of like just from a judicial standpoint, evangelicals are the dog that caught the car. You know, and now what do we do? And and so there was this instant sort of, and I know we talked about this at dinner last night, that we weren't ready for it because, and, and the evidence of that you see in places like Kansas and Kentucky where there was a very, you know, politically at least conservative states where there was just some really sharp reaction to this. And it helped us realize, you know what, the rest of the country is not here so what is, the, and again, we're not politicians, we're not lawmakers, so it's not really our responsibility to, to get into that realm. But as the church, we, we have to present the truth in this environment. I'm also thinking about a conversation I had with a rabbi friend of mine who's probably watching right now. And, um, and, and, and he and I, we, we were scheduled to be on the platform together in a conference in Nashville, and he calls me a week after the decision. And he said, I imagine you guys are celebrating this. And I said, yeah. Yeah, we are. And here are all the reasons. He said, yeah. He said, my congregation is mourning this. And he said, we, we need to talk about this. And so what it turned into on our, our platform time together was a, a really honest and, and healthy but painful conversation. And I don't know about you guys, but I really would rather just get along with somebody. Right. And then you and I are both from the deep south. You're in Alabama. I grew up in South Carolina. So we... we we grew up with this idea of keeping the peace, which if you read the Bible is not really the same thing as what Jesus talks about when he says make peace. 
why, here's why I'm saying all this. Why would we still be so adamant about this issue, given the, the level of vitriol that we know it's going to stir? People that we love, one individual that I've already mentioned, and there are more that I love, that I'm in relationship with. Um, why not just let this go? Why is it important? I'd like both of you to speak to that for us to actually contend for the sanctity of human life from the moment of conception. I think that um, 63 million lives, we lost 63 million lives mm -hmm. during the years that Roe was the law of the land. And that is, that's such a large number, guys, that it loses its meaning for us. Mm -hmm. We lost, by way of example, every single person in the state of Texas and every single person in the state of Florida combined to abortion wow. in those 50 years. If you wiped the population of those two states off of the map, that can't be God's design right. and God's will. We know it's not. We know deep in our bones that life is sacred because we're created in his image and that as as followers of Christ, our job is to seek human flourishing, to love our neighbors, and to, to promote the things that, that promote human flourishing. So obviously, I think we do have to keep after this, and you're so right that it's, it is a tenuous, tenuous conversation, even in a deep south state like Alabama, where on the ballot, an abortion initiative is going to win and win easily. But still, there are people in every friend group and maybe even someone that you, you know, go to church with or work with <clears throat> who feel differently <clears throat> for whatever reason. It may be personal experience or it may be that they, like many of my contemporaries, have grown up in a Roe v. Wade world and have believed the narrative that has been established by those who think that abortion is a good, is a human good. And so we have work to do to unwind that. Mm. But we have to do it with passion, but passion rooted in love. Love for our neighbors, love for these women, love for these children. and. I would like to say that even doing it in love, you'll never push the wrong button and someone have them be upset with you. But we know, realistically, that's, that's still going to happen sometimes. But at least when we're always speaking and moving out of love, and, and it's not about ourselves, but out of our love for others, we can put our pillows on our head, on our, our heads on our pillows at night and relax and, and rest knowing that we did speak the truth in love and that we can trust the Lord to take the message we delivered, whether it was in a conversation at work or to our own children as we, you know, train them how to see these issues, and, and that the Lord is going to take that conversation and through his Holy Spirit allow it to take root, hopefully, and bear good fruit in that person's life later on. Yeah. So we, it, some of it is trusting him, engaging in those conversations, trusting him, knowing that, it may look a little messy on the front end, but if we do it out of love and compassion, the Lord will work in it. That's good. And I would add to um, what Dana had just said about, you know, 63 million lives. You know, those are the, the children that have been lost. But then if you think about the ripple effect of that with the women and the men 
grandparents, you know, aunts, uncles, if you just follow that. I mean, there's a lot of devastation and a lot of healing that needs to take place. And something that has been at the forefront of my mind, I think since October, whenever Glenn Stanton was here, and he was talking about approaching the issue that he spoke about with 100% grace and 100% truth. And I think that's where we need to, um, in every area of our lives, but especially on this topic, we need to really, that needs to be at the forefront of how we approach it. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about this phrase you use, image of God, because the 63 million, those are not cats, right? Those are not, right? those were human beings. And the thing that makes the difference is the image of God. How has that phrase and your understanding of that shaped your thinking on this? You know, the first person who really sort of developed an understanding in me of that is Dr. Russell Moore. I had the opportunity to go to an ethics seminar that he gave at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in Nashville at the SBC home office. And it was just like a two-day crash course. I felt like I was drinking from a fire hose because I'm, I'm not a great intellectual, y'all. I, I write and I think, but I don't feel like I'm quite on the level as a lot of these academics, so I have to run hard to keep up. Um, but Russ just got it from somebody else. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, he, he talked so much that day about how, you know, our worth is derived from the fact that, you know, Scripture tells us repeatedly and in the whole counsel of God's Word that we are created in His image. And that, that does set us apart from the rest of all of creation. We, we are different. We are sacred in that way. And yeah. so that is how we have got to learn to see ourselves, and that's the way we've got to learn to see our neighbors. I was thinking about this, too, when I was listening to the fabulous work that this mission team did in Vietnam, you know, seeing the image of God in those people who are culturally different, physically different, linguistically different. They have nothing in common with you except the image of God in each of us. Yeah. And so that is your common bond. And that is that is where your love for one another is rooted from. Um, and, and when we seek human flourishing, whether it's serving the medical needs of someone halfway around the world who has, you know, a lack, or whether it's, you know, counseling with a, a woman in crisis, um, I think that is where we reflect the gospel to folks more than in any other way. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a theology of creation that's underdeveloped in a lot of churches even. We're really good at telling people that they're sinners and that they need a Savior, and those things are both true. We should say those things, but that's not where the story starts. The story starts with the reason that God's sinner redeemer is his image is to be redeemed. This idea that relationally we have a connection to God that not even the angels are able to have, that functionally we were put here as kings and queens over the whole created order, and that all of that is grounded in this substantive reality that there's just something qualitatively different between merely speaking a wildebeest into existence and forming the man from the dust of the ground. Amen. That there's just something special and, and that, that that not only relates to abortion, it relates to so many of the mental health issues that we have now, if people could just see mm -hmm. that they are inherently sacred just by, by virtue of their own existence. So yeah, it's so great. Now on that front, we anybody who believes in the image of God, anybody, we want justice. 
So one of the reasons we've contended for something like the overthrow of, of Roe is because we felt like it was just bad law. It was just fundamentally unjust. It's resulted in the kind of carnage that we've been talking about here. But when we talk about justice, how do we balance that with compassion, specifically in this way? And Dana, I know, and this is where yours has been a really helpful voice, because there's an element, kind of a far-right element, that is, that is really charging hard and taking advantage of this moment to try to advocate for criminalizing, prosecuting women, the women that you talk about, and actually putting them in prison for seeking abortion. And on the surface, it kind of sounds like, you know, well, law and order, and this is what you need to do, an equal protection under the law, and don't unborn children deserve equal protection under the law. Um, yours has been a voice, and I'll go ahead and preempt it, alongside of mine who said, I uh, know this is not what the pro-life movement should stand for. Talk a little bit about that. Right, so this is where I'll, you know, take off my Sunday school hat and put on my public policy hat because I do spend a great deal of my life writing about public policy, uh, you know, legislation, both in my state and, and federally, and how those laws actually function once they are signed, sealed, and delivered. And many times, what sounds good on the front end, what sounds like justice, what sounds like it would, you know, bring really good outcomes just does not at the end of the day. <clears throat> so... On the, the idea of criminalizing women and jailing them for abortion, it's like you said, if you, if you look at sort of the raw philosophical analysis, it would be easy to say, well, if that child is alive and that person has taken that life, then certainly we would want to prosecute them like we would any other murderer. The problem is that in every abortion story that I have come in contact with, there were almost always a lot of decision makers and drivers of that decision that were not that woman. It might be the, the father who abandoned her, or it might be the partner who is still with her who's sitting in his truck outside the clinic where I'm counseling with her, telling her, texting her, if she doesn't get back in that truck right now so they can get to Tallahassee and take care of this, He's going to beat her. So these women have stories and pressures and duress placed upon them many times when they're making these decisions that completely cloud the idea of what justice really is. If we're going to be people who want to pursue justice as we know God sees justice. The other thing is, and this is a political reality, when, when we talk about places where we would even be able to pass such a law, those are places where abortion is already going to be banned or all but banned. A place like Alabama, you might be able to pass a law like this. Or West Virginia. Or West Virginia. And so already you've re reduced abortion to just a very, very few in your state, and now you also want to prosecute uh, the women. Now, let me say, we have always in the pro-life movement sought to leverage the criminal justice system to end abortion by prosecuting doctors who perform abortions. So it's not like there's a total lack of will to, to pursue criminal penalties there. But it's just a much, a, a much, I think, wiser pursuit to deal with physicians who are under no duress, who know exactly what they are doing, and who, who choose to engage in that um, of their own volition. And so anyway, 
if we pass these laws in deep red states where they could possibly be passed, you will put a handful of women in jail, but the optics of that, once it's broadcast in a purple state, where abortion rights are still very much a jump ball that's in play, and people are trying to figure out how they feel about all of this, the optics of locking up poor women in Alabama will cause us to lose crucial abortion legislation battles in places like Pennsylvania or you know other other purple states where we we're probably a few points electorally from winning but that'll cost us the whole ball game and when we lose the ball game to restrict abortion in those states many more children will die so you could lock up 10 women in Alabama yeah. Does that does that make sense? I don't think it's wise. I don't think it's just, yeah. and I don't think it's wise. And nationally, all of the major, credible, long-time pro-life organizations want nothing to do with that entire strategy, right. and, and I agree with them in that way. Yeah, yeah. It, it, sometimes it's just a failure to understand that ours probably is the best system of justice that the world has ever known but it's still imperfect. It's never going to get everything right. And we're never going to see fully embodied justice until the Lord comes. And so it's not just that we do justice. We also have to love mercy, Micah tells us. And so let's, let's go back to that for a moment, compassion. Um, no doubt in my mind, not because I know anybody's stories even in this room, but, but just you get the sheer number of people that are in this room right now. We're talking to a woman who has this in her history. What needs to be true? And here's, Dana, where I'm going to ask you the question. You've come up from Alabama. You don't know us. You really barely know me. So this is your opportunity to speak truth to us, to a people you don't know. What needs to be true of this congregation for you to be able to tell a woman in that situation, those are the people you need to go see? Every, every Christian organization that I talk to about this, I tell them they have got to be driven out of deep love for all people, and that includes women. Even women who are imperfect and who have made real mistakes, who, who have tripped and fallen and tripped and fallen, to see them as God sees them and still want their best and still love them, even sacrificially. And I would also say we have got to be people who listen. And that was another theme that I, I sort of heard in, in your missions presentation is to be able to serve people, you've got to really listen to them. Yeah. You've got to know them. You've got to know what they're struggling with and what their needs are. And I know you probably see this all the time in counseling other women. We've got to be people who listen well and who love radically and sacrificially. And our pride about being right has got to be secondary to our love for both these women and their children and all of the other people, like you've mentioned earlier, who are around them who would be impacted by this decision one way or another because there, it is a ripple effect. We think about it as a decision that affects just the child or just the child and the mother, but there are, there are all kinds of negative impacts from abortion, and yeah. we've got to love everyone in that equation. That's such a good answer. And you mentioned the pragmatics of the policy on it a few moments ago. That's actually true for us because the dynamic here has not changed. 
prior to row, after row, and the reason for that is there are no clinics here in the Panhandle. And so if a young lady wanted to terminate a pregnancy, she would drive 30 minutes into Hagerstown, which is in Maryland. Maryland's a blue state. That's not going to happen in Maryland, and so Roe's been overturned, but functionally nothing has changed here. So the church's responsibility remains the same in all seasons, really for the last 2,000 years. Michelle, what, is, what does compassion look like, or maybe even you, you've been brave enough to share your story multiple times here, and you just told it uh, a few moments ago. What, what, what's some of the greatest examples you've seen of compassion? Well, I think, um, you know, what Dana said about listening, like that, that would definitely be at the forefront um, for people to be, to feel comfortable coming forward, whether they're in that situation or whether they have an abortion in their past. And one of the biggest things that I feel like that our church is doing really well is having this conversation so that it's not taboo, so that it's not shoved under the rug. And um, women are, are sitting in shame, like, what if somebody finds out that, and, um, you know, it was a long time before I felt comfortable, and, and that may never be the case for a woman. There, the class that we run, confidentiality is at the forefront of that. That's, I guard that very closely, um, and that's why these responses come to my personal email, so that I can, you know, we can have that conversation. Um, the class that we'll be offering beginning in January, that information about where that's located, the time, the date will not be advertised. That'll be a one-on-one -on -one conversation as well. So I think, A, just having the conversation, having the openness, seeing leadership um, with compassionate hearts that are willing to talk about this is huge. Yeah. Guys, think. let's leave that uh, email address up just so folks know that is Michelle's private email. It will come only to her. Um, but I know... I know of the work you've done. I'm really, really grateful for it. Looking forward to seeing what God does with it uh, in the future. I, can we take a few moments and just pray, not just over this issue, but over the sisters in Christ that are to come? And uh, let me just remind you that we believe in a gospel that has at its center a cross with a man on it who bled for human sin. And that there's absolutely nothing you have done, just like there's nothing I have ever done. I think one of the one of the indicators of somebody that's living like they've been truly forgiven is they're actually able to be open about it, talk about it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned us not making this taboo. We don't want it to be taboo because we want people to be open. We want them to find healing, and we want that to be evidenced in them to be able to say, just as you said, "Hey, here's, this is in my past, and it's gone." And it is wiped away by the blood of Jesus. Can I just add real quick? The last time I spoke, I shared um, a statistic that was from a LifeWay survey done a few years back. But they had surveyed women in the church who had had abortions. And over half of them said that when they heard their pastor preach a sermon about forgiveness, they didn't think that applied to abortion. And that is heartbreaking, and that should not be. And yeah. um, I just felt like I needed to... No, that's, that. that's excellent. And some of that's on pastors, since I are one. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Because um, I know earlier in my ministry, I, I said, and there was nothing. If I go back and, and you said, Joel, was there anything you said about abortion as a 26-year-old punk that, in his first church that was untrue? No. But I honestly do not know if the women listening to me would have heard. So I've had to learn a lot. And I, I just, it, from folks like you all, 
to help me better shepherd those kinds of souls. And, and let me say just by way of caution, because I do kind of live with a foot in two worlds in, in politics and in Christian pro-life advocacy. We cannot take our talking points, even from our allies who are working strictly in politics many times, because they are going to speak about this in a language and in a tone many times that is not reflective of the heart of God toward this issue. So we've got to be really thoughtful. I think all of us in modern culture are, are just marinating in information and dialogue from cable news. If you leave the news on all day in your house or social media, you know, we're scrolling, 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 seeing these quotes or these videos. And, and a lot of them sort of fill our hearts and our minds with, with talking points or, or dialogue that may be true, but is that how Christ would say it? Yeah. And so I, I'm constantly sort of checking in with myself because I can, I can get a little heavy. I can get heated. I'm a fighter in my bones. Well, you're an Auburn fan. You have to be. <laughs> that hurt, Joel. Sorry. It's so painful. Sorry. Y'all are having a bad week, aren't you? I didn't if mean to open that. If they Alabama into the playoff yeah. this afternoon, I'm going to need prayer. Oh, I will join you with that. I, y'all, Jesus be near. Um, <laughs> No, anyway, but yeah, I'm a fighter. I'm a scrapper. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when I care deeply about a thing, I, I can, if I get in my flesh, yeah. I, I can get out there and be too harsh or, or too aggressive in ways that will not speak to women like Michelle interacts with and, and will set us back in some ways with people who need to be persuaded. Those yeah. people in the middle that... You know, that 10 or 15% in the middle of the electoral demographic that we need to convince that this is right and it is good for women and for children yeah. come with us. Yeah, we don't have to choose between mother and child. Yes. Dana, I want to ask you to pray and specifically just to aim toward any, any of the ladies that might be in front of us or watching online, but just pray over this issue. Pray that our church will be faithful. Thank you again for coming. I'll ask the musicians if they'll come on up while she's praying. We want one, one final song we want to sing and give you an opportunity to respond. So there'll be elders and deacons with lanyards underneath these four crosses around the building. If there's anything at all, may not, may not have anything to do with what we've talked about today. If there's a way we can minister to you, we're here for you. Okay? Thanks for coming. Sure. Lord, um, I just thank you so much for the honor and the privilege this morning of having this conversation with fellow believers. Lord, I thank you for Covenant Church and for the body that you have assembled here of men and women and children who genuinely love their neighbors because they were first loved by you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would pour out on this congregation, on this body of believers, your Holy Spirit so that they will be empowered to love even better all that they encounter, every woman, every child, and that they will be just, Lord, gifted and anointed with the words to say in the crucial moments, with the heart of compassion when they encounter someone who might be in crisis. And Lord, this morning I also just lift up, you know, women in this room who may be at a crossroads in their lives who may have a situation where they are struggling about what the right thing to do is. And Lord, I just pray that you would calm that heart, 
that you would speak peace to that individual or individuals, Lord, and that you would just comfort them with the knowledge that you are sovereign and that you love them and that you have got a plan to prosper them and not to harm them, Lord. I just pray that you'd pour yourself out and make yourself so evident to women in their moment of need and any who are here today who are in a moment of need, Lord, that they could do nothing but cling to your hand and seek your wisdom, Lord, about what their next steps should be. And Father, I just also pray that you would pour yourself out on members of this church family and show them the places where they can engage. Open their eyes, whether it's a crisis pregnancy center somewhere in this area, whether it's just becoming a donor to an organization like that that really meets these women in their moment of need, or maybe it's coming alongside Michelle and saying, hey, what can I do? What can I do right here to serve families in Covenant Church? Lord, I just pray that you would make that evident and that you would fill them with a desire to serve and to love and that you would show them where you have ordained good work for them to do. And so, Father, I just thank you so much for the goodness of your word, Lord, and for the encouragement that we derive from it. And, Father, even when it looks really black and dark in our country, when we see so much deception and confusion and people who really do believe deep in their hearts things that you tell us just are not true, remind us, Lord, that through you we can see better things tomorrow. Through you, we can see progress, and through you, we can take the gospel to people in the way that transforms lives and transforms our communities and our states and our country. And so, Father, I just thank you again for this privilege, and we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, ladies. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.